0: Welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to begin by thanking the sponsor of today's episode, Sandra Bird, author of the Tudor Ladies-in-Waiting series. A rich alchemy of fact and fiction, these critically acclaimed books chronicle the glittering court lives of three queens and their closest friends and companions. The novels brim with heartwarming and heartbreaking circumstances and heroines who choose lives worth risking all. Book 1, To Die For, follows Queen Anne Boleyn through the viewpoint of Margaret Wyatt. Library Journal awarded it a Best Books of the Year pick and said the novel brings history to life in exquisite detail. Book 2, The Secret Keeper, uncovers love and betrayal in the life of Queen Catherine Parr. Library Journal calls the book atmospheric, full of twists and a must-read for Tudor fiction fans. Finally, book three, Roses Have Thorns, draws close to Queen Elizabeth I through Ellen von Snakenborg, who transformed into Helena, the Marchioness of Northampton. I loved all three books and found this concluding one masterful, impeccably researched and deliciously detailed storytelling. The series is available at Amazon.com. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors Patreon community to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and take part in a member-only book club and to patron-only monthly giveaways to name but a few of the perks. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Kate Hurd to the podcast to chat about Holbein at the Tudor Court. Kate Hurd is the senior curator of prints and drawings, the Royal Collection Trust. The Royal Collection is among the largest and most important art collections in the world and one of the last great European Royal Collections to remain intact. It comprises almost all aspects of the fine and decorative arts and is held in trust by the Sovereign for his successes in the nation. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Kate. How are you? I'm well thank you how are you? I'm well thank you it's so lovely to have you on the show perhaps we can just start with you just maybe introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background.
1: Absolutely. Um, I am Senior Curator of Prints and Drawings at Royal Collection Trust. So I work with the collection of prints and drawings based at Windsor Castle. But I think the reason that I'm talking to you today is I'm the curator of the current exhibition at the Queen's Gallery, which is Holbein at the Tudor Court, which looks at the wonderful collection of works by Holbein in the Royal Collection. It's really been a dream exhibition for me. Holbein's always been a fantastic interest. So this is is a wonderful project.
0: Absolutely. And I was just saying before we started recording that I did get to see the exhibition recently, and it was an absolute highlight of my my trip to England. So I highly recommend it for anyone that's listening. You can probably hear how enthusiastic I am. I love Holbein and I love Tudor artwork. So, so maybe for, for people that perhaps haven't heard about the exhibition, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what they can expect to see if they do visit?
1: Absolutely. The exhibition is at the Queen's Gallery in London at at Buckingham Palace. And the Royal Collection has one of the greatest collections of works by Holbein in the world. So the exhibition celebrates that. And it includes about 40 of Holbein's portrait drawings, paintings, miniatures, looking at his work at the Tudor court. Um, So when he arrived in 1526 and and looking for work and what happened next. And we've used some other wonderful treasures from the collection from the Tudor period to put that work into context to show how people people reacted to Holbein's work and what the visual world was like at the Tudor court um, in the 16th century.
0: Yes and actually that's one of the things I love that it of course it's not just Holbein you've got treasures from you know other artists there as well which is quite amazing. So maybe if we focus on Holbein at the next little bit of our chat do you want to tell us a little bit about his background maybe his family early life? Yes, I mean Holbein
1: is born an artist and I think you see that through the exhibition. He um was the son of an artist in Augsburg. He came from a very artistic family, so a lot of his relatives were artists. We think his father trained him and his his older brother Ambrosius. And then he moved to Basel in around 1515 in Switzerland and set out on his own there. He was looking for a career and was very quickly very successful, which is a real reflection of his talent. He's a real master of illusion. He's able to create these very Life-like. He does these amazing house facades where um, it looks as if there are real people dancing and real horses on the front. He paints panel paintings and uh, designs for stained glass. So he's he's really doing well. And he's once he arrives in Basel, he's commissioned to to paint portraits to illustrate books. So he's he's really making a name for himself. But he he's clearly someone who's ambitious, which I think is probably why he ended up in England.
0: He's a really versatile artist, isn't he? I think sometimes that's surprising to people that he's not just painting these incredible portraits. He's doing all sorts of work, isn't he?
1: It's really, really rich. In the royal collection, the treasures of the portraits. So that's what we really focus on in the exhibition. But he was designing metalwork. He was designing, um, there's a design for a fireplace in the British Museum, which is amazing. He's doing religious painting for churches, all sorts of things.
0: And I know that he spent some time in France, so this is prior to him going to England. Is that right?
1: It is it's a bit of a mystery. We know very little about his time in France. He went in 1524. He makes two utterly gorgeous drawings in Bourges Cathedral of two sculptures there of the Duke and Duchess of Berry. They're gorgeous drawings. He makes him these, these stone sculptures look as if they're living figures. They're quite incredible. So we know he got to Bourges, but we don't really know what he was doing in France and why he was there. He comes back pretty quickly. It's always thought he was looking for work at the court of Francis I. And Francis I is one of the great patrons of Europe. He collects a lot of Italian artists. Leonardo da Vinci was at the French court until 1519 and I think that's probably a court where Holbein thinks, "Oh, you know, I th- there might be space for me here." So, but w- we have no records as to to whether he got there and quite what he was doing. That's just supposition.
0: And so how then does the trip to England come about?
1: That is both a carrot and a stick. The carrot, I think, is that there's another court where there's a monarch who wants to collect art, who's gathering artists from across Europe. And that first section of the exhibition, you'll remember, is full of those paintings that we know were owned by Henry VII and Henry VIII from across Europe. So it's a very vibrant court that Holbein's aiming for. He's, he's got a good chance of being employed there. But also the Reformation was um, starting to gather pace across Europe. And we know that in 1526, the town can, or the, the painter's in Basel, petitioned the town council, saying that they they had no more commissions. Iconoclasm meant that people weren't commissioning works of art. They couldn't feed their families. They were appealing for help. And there was a connection between Erasmus, the great publisher and thinker, who Holbein knew in Basel because he'd illustrated his books, and Sir Thomas More in London, another great author, a leading sort of figure at the Tudor court. And Erasmus seems to provide a letter of introduction to Thomas More. And we know that Erasmus says that, that Holbein is essentially looking for work. He's looking for angels, that's gold coins, rather than angels. I always thought right. he was looking for, you know, people to paint, but he was looking for gold coins. So it's, it's Holbein looking for work, but also... I think, looking for good work and looking for career progression as well.
0: And so we know that Holbein, in fact, leaves England in in around 1528. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that chapter of his life?
1: Yes, that's absolutely fascinating because he comes to England and he starts doing really well, really fast. So he's given a couple of commissions by Thomas More who writes a letter to Erasmus saying oh he's a wonderful artist. So he's he's getting this appreciation. More is um, a very senior figure at court as is Henry Guildford and we have both the drawing and the painting of Henry Guildford In the exhibition, but Holbein paints him in fifteen twenty seven. William Warham, Archbishop of Canterbury, commissions him at the same time. He's given a royal commission in fifteen twenty-seven, part of a team of artists to create temporary decorations for Greenwich. So it's going really well. But in 1528 he does go back to Basel, and it seems that the town council threatened him with the loss of his citizenship. They were quite cross, they'd lost a really good artist, so they you know he went back to, to maintain his citizenship. His wife and children Was still there so he was heading home to the family as well but he doesn't stay for very long he undertakes a few commissions in Basel but is back in England by 1532 so only four years or so away.
0: And and so when he returns he's obviously already sort of got a bit of a reputation Mm. as being this wonderful Mm. artist so when he comes back to England is that when the real sort of rise happens do you think? Yes and
1: this we see Through the works, which is fascinating, you can see a difference in his drawings after he returns. So, again, you'll remember the exhibition in the Green Gallery, those drawings move from those wonderful big sheets with the very detailed chalk drawings to those really lovely, warm, small sheets on pink prepared paper. And this is Holbein essentially speeding his production up so rather than he's creating a flesh tone that he can then use to create the portrait on and he he starts using more medium Um, so before he's been using colored chalks almost exclusively for those portrait drawings and he starts to use ink and watercolor and metal point and all sorts of things so we see him trying to speed his process up but we also see a greater variety of sitters So the men and women in that gallery include pages of the bedchamber, they include duchesses, they include authors, they include ambassadors. And it seems you can see his reputation spreading and you can see more and more people wanting a Holbein portrait. And, and, And so his practice among courtiers, among the Tudor elite is really,
0: really taking off and expanding. And do you want to tell us a little bit more about some of his working practices? Because I know people are always so interested to know, does he go to the client? Does the client come to him? Does he paint from life? How many sittings? All that sort of, you know, really juicy detail.
1: Absolutely. Um, And we have absolutely no documents at all for those juicy details. (laughs) So it's all guesswork, which is almost more fun. If there was a letter describing a sitting, you know, it would be very easy. But we have one description of a sitting for Christina of Denmark when Holbein painted her we know that he had a three hour sitting, but we don't know if that's typical. We don't know if she said, you've got three hours, whether he said my required time is three hours. We know he took portraits from the life and the drawings that are in the Royal Collection are the evidence for that because those are taken with the sitter in front of him. And the exhibition looks really closely at his working techniques and how he put those drawings together and why he wanted to May have wanted to do particular things. So we look at at why he chose certain poses for people, why he chose certain you know chalk here, ink here, and yeah, you start to pull out that evidence from the from the works of art themselves.
0: and I think the other thing that I find really fascinating is that process of refinement that happens from his what we might presume to be a first sitting in the sketches. then the final painting or whatever the the final piece is. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that process?
1: Yes, that is fascinating and that really characterises Holbein. You can see, and we have three instances in the exhibition where you have the preparatory work and the finished portrait, so you almost see him starting with a blank sheet of paper and and the the portrait um, being completed, and you can really see how he worked on each one and how he, with Guildford, he changes the face so in the painting, Guilford's face is much longer, he seems more authoritative. And that, that's not just Guilford, that happens all around the paintings and drawings that we see. We see him changing and changing and changing, so changing an aspect of a sitter's dress, changing an aspect of a sitter's appearance. We know he did that through his life, because one of the drawings in the exhibition is of a man we've identified as George Cornwall. And if it's John George Cornwall, that was made in 1543, which means it's one of the last drawings that Holbein made. And the finished painting is at the Stadel in Frankfurt. And that is different. George Cornwall has a, a longer beard and different clothes and the feather in his hat is different. So you get the sense that Holbein, even at the end of his life, is, is making these changes. So you're not looking at a young artist who's, who's trying to get it right. You're looking at a perfectionist who can't stop. And Derek Bourne, that wonderful portrait of Derek Bourne, we closed the exhibition with, is the the ultimate example of that. He's been the subject of the most fantastic conservation project over the past few years, in which Holbein's original paint has been uncovered in areas from underneath layers of filler. But the head of paper conservation also used resources at the Getty Conservation Institute in Los Angeles, who were fantastic and, you know, shared their resources with us. And she was able to use their imaging to see underneath the layers of the paint and to realise how Holbein has created this incredibly sort of sculptured cheeks of this sitter through a process of refining and refining and changing the line and changing the line. It's absolutely fascinating.
0: So wonderful. And I have to ask you, Kate, the the painting, that no, not the painting, the drawing, sorry, that's known as Queen Anne Boleyn. What are your yes. thoughts on that one? That one always causes so much controversy whenever, you know, anyone posts about it online. Um, what do you think of that one?
1: Absolutely. Well, we had to include it because it is such a famous drawing and, and people you know, find it f- so fascinating. Everything with Holbein is open to debate. So there's no way that we can be absolutely certain. And everything we've put on the wall is there to say, look, let's have a conversation about yeah. this. But, you know, if you want my opinion, that's Anne Boleyn, which is yeah. really, really exciting. And I think... Oh, I think that it's Anne Boleyn for a number of pieces of evidence that come together to build this jigsaw that becomes quite a compelling argument for that being her. One of the things we did for the exhibition was to look at the, the drawing under the microscope because, of course, the issue for that is is the colour of her hair. Now, yeah. she has brown eyes. So there's definitely, there's no there's no question that the sitter has brown eyes, but Holbein built up his drawings in layers of colour and particularly his hair in layers of coloured chalk. And you can see in the exhibition a number of examples of that happening. And so he always starts with light and he works to dark. And when you look under the microscope, you can see that the drawing is rubbed and chalk sits on the surface of paper. It doesn't sink in. So it's very vulnerable to being, you know, sort of just rubbed off the surface. And I think that probably that dark, darker layers on top of the hair have, have disappeared. If that was the only piece of evidence, it would be a suggestion, but there are other things too. The the Wyatt arms on the back, there's quite a compelling argument. This is the only drawing that has anything on the back. Um, Holbein doesn't normally draw on the back of his portrait drawings, and it suggests this, this became scrap paper in a way that the other drawings didn't. And so you start to wonder why the sitter's portrait wasn't wanted in the way that the others were. Then you wonder why the Wyatt arms. Well, Henry Wyatt died in November 1536. So is Holbein drawing the arms because he's doing something for the funeral? He's designing something for Wyatt's chapel. Wyatt's one of his early patrons. There's that that question about the dress, Maria Haywood has done that wonderful work on the dress that the sitter is wearing and, you know, making suggestions about items of clothing we know Anne Boleyn had. Finally, the inscription, which is based on an identification by Sir John Cheek in the mid-16th century who, who knew the sitters. And there's evidence that Cheek only wrote the identifications for the drawings where he actually knew who the sitters were, and he, he would have known who Anne Boleyn was. So all these little bits of evidence come together to make for me, a compelling argument that it's Anne Boleyn. But, you know, again, the fun is the debate, isn't it? And the, and the discussion.
0: Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I've thought that this is Anne for, for many years now, but I think you've just summed up those arguments so beautifully. So so thank you so much. What about if we talk a little bit about his patrons, now that we're talking about Anne Boleyn? So who were some of Holbein's patrons at the Tudor Court? You've mentioned a couple already.
1: Absolutely. All sorts of people. And, um, they are the Tudor elite, because you have to be able to afford a portrait. So it's not a cross section of Tudor society. But there's a relatively wide band of people. So I mentioned pages of the bedchamber, William Reskimer, who's, who's that wonderful chap we've got on the cover of the book with the most fantastic beard, who we, again, we've got the drawing and the painting next to each other. He's a page of the bedchamber. And if you look at his life, you start to see him almost gathering pace in the mid-1530s. He's starting to gain appointments. He's starting to gain means of income. He's making a quite advantageous marriage. He takes someone to court over a gold chain and you start to see this man gaining confidence almost. And so you, you see him you know, commissioning, I'm sure, a portrait at that time. One of my favourites is Thomas Lestrange, who's not a household name. It is the most beautiful portrait. I mean, if you look at it, it's a gorgeous use of black chalk and Holbein has left blank paper to show Lestrange's hair shining. He's got shiny black hair. He's got the most wonderful hat. Um, He's got these lovely blue eyes. And it's just a touch of watercolour. The only watercolour on that drawing is this tiny touch in the blue eyes. Now, Lestrange, we know a lot about because he kept the most incredible set of accounts. He and his wife listed everything that they bought and spent and who came... For dinner, who came to visit them at their home of Hunstanton Hall, which is on the North Norfolk coast. And so you suddenly get this incredible impression of a bustling Tudor household. And you, you can see the guests, you can see them, what they're eating, but you can also see they're being entertained by jugglers, minstrels from the king, trumpeters from the Duke of Sussex, who are clearly going around the country and stopping off at Hunstanton Hall. And when you start to look at the guests that Lestrange and Lady Lestrange are having, for dinner and to stay, you see Holbein sitters all the way through. So you see Baron and Lady Vaux are their brother and sister-in-law, and they probably commissioned a portrait in fifteen thirty-five. Lestrange commissions his in fifteen thirty-six. Fascinatingly, the levels come for um, a visit in 1527. And Anne Lovell is being painted by Holbein for that amazing National Gallery portrait at about that time. William Parr, who's also in the exhibition, is a nephew. The Shelton and Boleyn families visit because they're local neighbours. The Duke of Norfolk is the local patron, and he and the Earl of Surrey sent gifts of of food duke of suffolk lestrange rents lands for from him the rent for those lands is collected by a member of the wingfield family and we have a sit of the wingfields on the wall so you start to see these networks and the networks survive for lestrange because we have the accounts so you can create those those connections but the accounts for all the other sitters are lost, and you realise it's not the stranger's special, but you know these amazing connections survive across the the gallery and across Holbein's work. I think that a lot of his commissions must have been word of mouth. There are no documents, but you can imagine that those sociable occasions, people are sitting down telling their news amazing artist. He's come from Switzerland. He's German. He's painting my portrait. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's on the wall behind me. You know, have a look. And people, I want one of those. And Holbein gets another commission. So all sorts of fascinating sitters.
0: Yes, I I love those accounts. I do know the accounts and I study Anne Boleyn. I was so excited when I saw that the Boleyns were guests or Elizabeth Boleyn was a guest. That was really, really exciting because we don't often find her in the accounts, Elizabeth. So that was really exciting. And I was going to ask you why so many of his sitters seem to be around the area of East Anglia, but I think you've pretty much explained it. So it seems to be a network of kind of contacts that are spreading the word about his um, reputation. Would that make sense? I
1: I think so. But I think also that those networks existed across the country. I mean, I'm fascinated by the East Anglian connection. I am East Anglian myself. So it it feels, you know, there's something really lovely about about thinking about all those places and, and, and why they might have commissioned Holbein. I think also East Anglia is at the time one of the the richest areas of the country. So there were people there who were very prominent at court. The Norfolks are obviously very significant figures at court or the the, the Howard Dukes of Norfolk. I think also there are quite significant collections with continental Europe through the ports in East Anglia. So a lot of the East Anglian patrons are used to receiving, you, you know, um, the latest art from Europe. There, there's quite an enlightened community of patrons there. And that's not to say that there wasn't in other areas of the country, but having that wealth and that access to to art from across Europe alongside those networks, um, I think just created this this wonderful potential for Holbein and he was just passed from from sitter to sitter.
0: That's so wonderful and, and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Holbein's later life and ultimately also his his death as well.
1: Absolutely he really makes it I mean we talked at the start about how he was looking for a court position and we know that by November 1536 he has been appointed king's painter so it's it's the ultimate accolade for a, for an artist in England so he is one of Henry VIII's salaried artists. He's not the only King's painter, there are plenty of them. Um, uh, Lucas Horenbout, Girolamo de Treviso works for Henry VIII as an engineer. So there are a number of senior artists at court, but it brings Holbein a salary so he doesn't have to sell a painting to make money. It brings him various other advantages. And it also shows that he, he'd he come to the notice of the king. And we don't know how that happened. Again, the documents are, are missing a silent on that point. But it's it's for Henry VIII that he really carries out the work that we know him today. So that amazing figure of Henry VIII, if you, if you shut your eyes and think of Henry, you, you think of Holbein as well. And that was painted for the Whitehall Mural, which was at Whitehall Palace um, until the fire in 1698. It was a life-size mural in the privy chamber that later descriptions described people being terrified by it, really shocked by it, because they, they, they it looked as if Henry was going to move. He was a large, very imposing man. We've got that incredible suit of armour in the centre of the gallery. And you just get the sense of his physical presence. And Holbein really shows that physical presence. And of course, the mural. Oh, gosh, if it survived, that would be incredible. We have that wonderful painting um, made in 1667, commissioned by Charles II, which shows us how it would have looked. So we're able to show the Whitehall mural and also its influence, because that is how Henry is shown. So there are so many copies and copies and copies of that painting. But we've also talked about Anne Boleyn and Holbein paints Anne Boleyn. He paints Jane Seymour. We've got that wonderful drawing in the exhibition um, made for the famous portraits of Jane. That wonderful drawing of little Edward, uh, little Prince Edward, who's only one year old. The finished painting's in Washington, but he's so young. It's just a tiny sketch. You can't do a sitting with a small child. There's a drawing of Princess Mary, which is just wonderful. So he's, he's really, you know, got his commissions. And he carries out other work for the king. He he carries out design work. We know that he designs jewellery and standing cups and all sorts of things. So it's going really well. And he dies very suddenly in 1543. And we don't know the circumstances of that, but from the will, it's clear that it's unexpected. And it's been suggested that that might've been the plague, which seems very likely. And so the very short will doesn't tell us very much, but it does give us a few key pieces of information. He asks that his goods be, sold to benefit two young children in London so we know he has now a new family in London we don't know anything more about those children they you know you can't trace them any further his executors are other craftsmen who've who've come from continental Europe so he's got you, you start to see his network and he, he also mentions he owns a horse, which I always find one of the most fascinating things about Holbein because you start to see how he might have got around. And we know he went to Europe, but you wouldn't take your horse, I don't think, all the way to Cleves because, you know, the poor horse would, you know, it would just be too much. You'd, you'd use a post horse. But for getting around the country, you'd need a horse. So you start to see that he might have gone out to East Anglia and he might have gone to Kent and these places to to draw his sitters. And I did have much fun. I just... I looked at other artist wills for the early 16th century because I thought I might try and look for another horse and I never found one. Now a lot of artists only mention monetary and this is quite common for wills you know they you know as well as I do they um they leave things as in monetary terms you don't know what the possessions are so it might be that every uh, artist owned a horse but Holbein's the only one that mentions it and um, I think that's fascinating
0: I love that detail I've actually never heard that before and now whenever I picture Holbein I'm picturing him on a horse now riding around so that's the, <laughs> the new thing we'll all be thinking about and of course he must have needed some form of transport so that makes perfect sense doesn't it mm-hmm. and, and so how is it Kate that this incredible body of work has survived and made it till, till now that we can go and see his work?
1: It's an incredible provenance because it goes right the way back to Holbein. And this is the drawings. We don't know where they were between Holbein's death in 1543 and 1547. So there's a four-year gap. But in 1547, they're at Whitehall Palace in one of the closets in a book. So they're in an album. And we know that in 1549, there's a record in the inventory that records them that says Edward VI, the young Edward VI, has taken the book from the closet, which must have been to look through. And it becomes very poignant when you realise there would have been a portrait of his mother, Jane Seymour, there, who he would never have known. He's looking at the figures of his father's court. It's probably around that time that John Cheek writes those inscriptions in the book so that the young boy knows who the sitters are. Now, Edward gives it away because Holbein is so famous that this becomes a courteous gift. And so the book is, the book of Holbein Portrait Drawings is passed around various major collectors who treasure it. And it comes back to Charles I. And Charles I doesn't treasure it because he collects paintings, not drawings. So he again swaps it for a Raphael painting and it leaves the collection again. And that's the Raphael painting now in Washington of George and the Dragon. And the book goes around and around. I think actually Charles I passing it on was a good thing with hindsight, because it meant that when Oliver Cromwell, you know, sold off a lot of the Royal Collection, that book of drawings was was elsewhere. It wasn't caught up in that. But the book comes back into the collection under Charles II. And again, that's a slight gap in our knowledge. We know it happens, but we don't quite know how it happens. And is then in the collection and is celebrated, has been celebrated throughout, but is really celebrated right the way through. So Queen Caroline takes those drawings out of the book and has them hung on the walls of her closet which is her space with her you know the, the art that she really treasures and wants to spend time with she gets someone to copy those inscriptions by John Cheek onto the drawing so they're not lost so we have to thank Queen Caroline as one of the heroines of the story. Under George the Third and George the Fourth, they're reproduced in print. Prince Albert has them photographed. They're just famous drawings. It's amazing. It's the most incredible survival and the most incredible story.
0: Absolutely wonderful. They have their own story, don't they the drawings after? They really after do Holbein. that's <laughs> that's incredible. I love that. And I have a very tricky question for you. Do you happen to have a, a favorite Holbein piece? I okay, know that's very difficult. <laughs> oh, How terrible of me to ask. <laughs>
1: It is difficult. I think I'd narrow down a few favourites, is that all right? Have I allowed a top five? Um, I mean, I've talked about Thomas Lestrange, who's just, I mean, because of the documents, but also those wonderful drawings, William Reskimer is fascinating. I think that's one of the instances where if you look for, we've got the the preparatory drawing and the finished painting on the on display in the gallery and if you look from the drawing to the painting you you can see Holbein at work you can see him moving between the sheet of paper and the panel and that's I was just fascinating and it's the most gorgeous little painting with that characteristic twisting vine behind these wonderful textures i'm very fond of the drawing of George Cornwall just yeah. because it's a beautiful example of Holbein's ink work And just, it's it's an exquisite drawing and you can spend a long time looking at that. And then the whole comparison with the painting is fascinating. There's a sitter called George Brooke, Lord Cobham, who is again, not a household name, but he was a fascinating man. He was a diplomat and um, he was governor of Calais. And if you read the letters, you see him exercising this incredible diplomacy to keep you know, the, the tensions between the French and the English under control. He was very brave. He spoke out against an execution at the Tudor court, um, which was a very brave thing to do. And Holbein shows him facing the front. It's a very frank portrait, which captures something of Cobham's character, but also the play of light on his face is is just exquisite. And also Derek Vaughan, we've talked a little bit about Derek Vaughan, that incredible painting and what Nicola in Paintings Conservation has discovered. Just looking at that portrait, she was able to take away that later paint and reveal Holbein's original painting underneath and the central section of the portrait and to see Holbein's original painting for the first time since probably the 18th century, to know how Holbein put that together and just to look at that incredible portrait. I mean, the the textures of the fabrics are incredible. He's dressed entirely in black, but he's got black fur and black satin that shines. And Holbein, who's so brilliant at these textures, just, you know, captures them. And there's an inscription on it that says, if you added a voice, this would be Derek, his very self. You know, you wouldn't know if the father or the painter made him. So the inscription says, look how alive this portrait is. And he really is alive. He looks at you from the wall and you look back and you expect him to start speaking to you. So we've closed the exhibition with that as a sort of look how wonderful Holbein is. But I, I think that would be one of my favourites. I have a horrible feeling I might have chosen six.
0: <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> perfectly fine. I don't think I can even round it down to six. So you've done an excellent yeah. job. Um, and they are. They're incredibly Alive, aren't they? These drawings and these paintings. And I I do think this is partly why the Tudor period is so popular, because we can actually see them, can't we? We can connect with the people of the Tudor court, And that is partly thanks to, to Holbein's genius, I think.
1: It's true. They're right there. Occasionally, I've been going into the exhibition and standing, particularly in the middle of that Pennethorn Gallery, which is the Green Gallery where we've got the drawings of the the Tudor court. And it's like standing in the Tudor court. You look around and you realise there are all these people that you you know that you've encountered in the documents that you've read about. And they're all sort of standing around you. It's the most, I mean, it, I'm, I'm loving going in and just spending time with them. He really does he captures them and he captures something of their not just the way that their faces look he captures something of their interests and their concerns and they're they're so evocative
0: absolutely and now do you want to just mention the publication the wonderful publication that accompanies the exhibition that that people can buy even if they're not able to to actually visit the exhibition
1: absolutely it's a book that looks at Holbein at the Tudor court and focuses on the portraits so it's not an exhibition catalogue with everything it really homes in on those portraits and looks at at how how Holbein worked at the Tudor court. So there's an essay that, that talks a little bit about his work, you know, looks at that thing like the horse, you know, having yes. a horse and this sort of thing, and how his commissions might have happened. Um, and then there's an entry for each of those sitters full page illustration um so yes I mean it's a reflection of the exhibition but also of the Holbeins in the collection and and
0: art at the Tudor court and it's beautiful I bought two of them one wasn't enough I don't know I need two books at the same time <laughs> so it's just fabulous um, so when does this exhibition close
1: It closes in April, on the 14th of April, so lots of time still to see it. And um, if people buy their tickets through the website uh, from Royal Collection Trust, they can get a one-year pass. So um, you can come back and back and back. So you can spend a lot of time with Holbein between now and April.
0: Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. It really was um, extraordinary to to spend time with Holbein and his sitters and patrons. And it's been so wonderful to chat with you, Kate. Thank you so much for making time to talk Tudors with me.
1: No, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for, for asking me.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail, and on Instagram as the Most Happy Seventy-Eight. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.